Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 25, The Egg and the Eye. As Harry had no idea how long a bath he would need to work out the secret of the golden egg, he decided to do it at night, when he would be able to take as much time as he wanted. Reluctant though he was to accept more favors from Cedric, he also decided to use the prefect's bathroom. Far fewer people were allowed in there, so it was much less likely that he would be disturbed. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, we have some very exciting announcements this week. We have a summer camp that's coming up that we're really excited about, and you can find out more about that at NotSorryWorks.com. And as always, we just want to let you know that our Patreon perk this week that is our bonus conversation is going to be about this amazing bath that happens in this chapter. The Prefect Bathroom, man. And I have have strong bath opinions, which are literally life and death. opinions (laughs) oh my god okay if you want to hear about the high stakes of my opinions on bathing you have to join our patreon and come get your bonus perks but we love you either way okay vanessa this week our theme is contemplation and you're going to tell us a story about that i am i'm not someone who's known for my contemplation in fact i would argue that i have two life partners one is my beautiful husband peter The other is Ariana Nettleman, who I run this business with. These are the two people who I have, like, actual contracts with. And as I was thinking about my New Year's resolutions, both of them said a version of, maybe stop to think before you say yes to things this year. Because you say yes to things, and then you get mad that you have to do them. And there was, like, a very intense moment of this. I, you know, as I've talked about before, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I became a teacher. I had a hard time finding a teaching placement that I liked, but then I I kind of finally found one where I was doing well. But because I couldn't find a teaching placement that I liked, I decided I was going to apply for grad school thinking, oh, maybe teaching isn't for me. And so I applied for a program in, in nonprofit management, and then I got in, and I got in with like a full scholarship. And so I just said yes. And I quit my job and I had been living in L.A. and was near my family. And that was kind of great. And I was like doing really well. And then I showed up in Philadelphia. And that first night I like moved into my dorm room and I had my schedule for orientation the next day. And none of it looked good or appealing to me. And I was just like, why am I here? What did I do? (laughs) 
And I thought about it in that moment. And I was like, I gave this no thought. Like, I just applied because I didn't like my job at the time that I started applying and then, you know, started studying for the GMAT and whatever. And then I got in and was like, oh, I don't know. I got in. I guess I'm going. And then I was here in this, like, sweaty dorm room in a city where I knew no one doing a program that I, like, didn't particularly care about. And I spent two years in Philadelphia because I, like, did not think about it ahead of time. And that is the thing I think about contemplation is that there are things that require contemplation. And it's about the timing as to when you are going to contemplate it. And I am a contemplative person. I just happen to be a contemplative person who contemplates after the mistakes, not before she thinks about making them. So I'm interested in this idea of contemplation and conversation with regret or forethought or ideally of like living this like peaceful, present life where contemplation is sort of part of your every day. And so although you obviously will still make mistakes, your decisions will be measured and informed and you won't end up like Harry with his foot in the stair or me in Philadelphia, a great city, but in a program that did not suit me at all. I mean, I think what's really interesting about your story is that it presumes, and I think this is right, that contemplation is a kind of thought, right? And so, like, what's the opposite of that kind of thought, right? And so impulsiveness might be the opposite of contemplation. But as you also said in your story, and I think this is right, I mean, I had to, I had to refrain from arguing with you. Like, I think you're a very contemplative person. Where you started by saying you're not contemplative, like, maybe you're impulsive in your life choices, I don't know. But once you got into that program, like, you were incredibly thoughtful and reflective about the content of the program. Yes. Right? Like, incredibly thoughtful and reflective about the pedagogy of the program. Like, even, whether or not you had made the right decision to be there, while there, you were really, really thoughtful. Like, you spend your days deeply reflective about texts and ideas, right? And, and Situations I've already gotten myself into. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But also, like, I mean, a person who, who decides to read Jane Eyre as a sacred text is a person who wants to take a contemplative stance towards that text or who decides to read Harry Potter as a sacred text it does the same thing. And so like, and I'm, this is not, I, you know, I think impulsiveness maybe is the opposite of contemplation in some sense. And you raise this as well, this idea of like forethought. Is that contemplation? Is that the kind of thinking contemplation is? What is the kind of thinking contemplation is? And, you know, it, it speaks even to like some of our sacred reading practices in the Lectio Divina. One of the traditional stages is contemplatio, right? Which is different than the other kinds of thinking that you do in the Lectio procession. And so I think your your story really points at that, that like contemplation is a form of thought, but it's not just the same thing as thinking. Yeah. There's a particular kind of contemplation, which is at, at stake. And the etymology suggests like what that might be. I'm not sure what it is. The con in contemplation is a prefix that often means like with, but in this case, etymologists believe it's like an intensifier. So it just means like extra. And the templation part comes from templeo, which is just like the Latin for temple. It suggests like the religious kind of attention that one has at the temple. So it's like it's some kind of deep and devoted thought, right? Mm-hmm. If that's what we're trying to think about with contemplation, I think this chapter is an interesting place to do that. There's not a ton of that kind of thought, but there's the absence of that kind of thought. And there are, I think, moments of that kind of thought in the chapter, as there are in your life, Vanessa, <laughs> nearly every day, mm-hmm. because you're a very contemplative person. Okay, Matt, it's time for the 30-second recap. On your mark. (laughs) On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry goes to the prefect's bathroom, which is opulent. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a prefect? They should say more about this bathroom. Anyway, uh, Myrtle's there, and it's creepy. And but he opens the egg, and it sings a song, and he memorizes it very quickly. And then he and he uh, deduces quicker than Cedric. And then he goes, and he goes through the stair. And then he's and then uh, 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 what's his name comes. Filch comes, and Snape comes, and Moody comes, and Moody can see him. And Moody's like, "Give me that map." And he's like, "Okay, I'm glad I didn't get in trouble for the map." And then uh, he goes back to the common room. I feel like there's some details in the end I missed, but they get the general sense. I feel like you and I focused on very similar things. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Myrtle is creepy. Yes. This bathroom does sound worth it to become a prefect. Yes. (laughs) 100 percent. All right. Vanessa, are you ready? Yeah. Three, two, one, go. 
So Harry is actually going to figure out what's going on for the second task. He goes to the bathroom. He's like, Cedric is probably lying to me. He does some laps in the, 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 not the swimming pool, the bath tub. And Myrtle helps and it's a mermaid and he's going to have to go into the thing and he's going to have to rescue something that matters to him. And he doesn't know how he's going to swim for that long underwater. And he's worried about that, but he goes out and Filch is like, aha, I finally caught Peeves. And um, Snape is like, Barty Crouch was in my office and that's it. I lost 28 seconds to trying to think of the word bath. It was more like 27. That's fine. So Vanessa, this chapter begins with Harry going to the prefect's bathroom. The text says he doesn't want to go there because he does not want to give the idea of Cedric in his head the satisfaction of knowing that he had to do something <laughs> that Cedric offered him, right? Like As he's if arguing with an psychic Im- satisfaction that Cedric exactly. is going to derive from like this there's a, there's an imaginary Cedric in his head, and that imaginary Cedric is the one he does not want to give the satisfaction to. But he needs a place that's quiet. He doesn't know how long it'll take him to figure it out. He he thinks he might be there a while, so he needs to go in the middle of the night to this bathroom. He doesn't know what the bathroom's like. He just knows it'll probably be empty and it'll certainly be quiet. I mean, it ends up less quiet than he thought it would be. And that's why he goes to the prefix bathroom. And that was the first thing that got me thinking about contemplation in this chapter. Because, I mean, you could say that what he needs to do is contemplate. He needs to contemplate this egg. He needs to kind of really deeply reflect upon this egg, which has been stumping him for so long. He knows it has something to do with taking a bath, but he doesn't know what. And so he knows he just needs time. And that got me thinking, you know, I had said, in response to your story, that contemplation is some form of thought, some form of deep thought. But thinking has to do with how our bodies are in the world, right? Like, if it's noisy, it's hard to have deep thought. If we're uncomfortable, it's hard to have deep thought. Obviously, if we're in pain or suffering, it's hard to think deeply. You, You become distracted by the circumstances of your physical body. And so it's just another sign of how, like, the mental and the physical or the spiritual and the physical, how these things are all deeply caught up in each other. And if you want to really sink deeply into your thoughts, you need to Put yourself in a physical situation where you're able to do that and free to do that. Yeah, it's sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, argument to some extent. I know that Maslow is controversial in a lot of ways, but I I do think it is easier to reach a level of contemplation if you are well-fed and, right, like if you're not distracted by bodily needs. And then even more on top of that, right, if you have like beautiful gong music playing or, you know, something that is making you feel more centered and, and certainly like floating around in a warm bath. Right. And there's a ton of symbolism to that too. Right. The way that this tub is described really does remind me of a mikvah, the Jewish ritual bath that Hmm. women go to every month. And it's bigger than a bathtub, smaller than a swimming pool, something where you can stand in and dunk underwater, you know, while standing and like warm and peaceful. But the thing that bothers me about this is I don't understand how Harry was supposed to solve this without Cedric's help. And I feel like these tasks should be solvable without corruption. The dragons, in theory, you can figure out right in front of you if you have enough skill. What does an egg have to do with water? That's a good question. You know, you and I are both baseball fans, Vanessa. And I think one of the things about baseball is there are rules, but there are also kind of understood and acceptable violations of the rules. Uh And just the way everyone kind of operates around the Triwizard Tournament, it sounds like the rule is, you know, you should do what you can get away with. Right with, with these rules because it sounds like you're you're expected to be resourceful and 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 use your allies and and others to help you figure things out. I'm not saying that I like that about the rule. Yeah, I just think that it seems like that's the sense. Like I don't have confidence that any of the other champions figured this out necessarily all on their own. I just think that everyone sort of like kind of secretly whispers to the people around them and their allies help them figure stuff out and they. They do that because it seems like every task, that's the only way anybody figures it out. And so maybe that is actually part of what's being tested. Like, can you manipulate these things? Can you skirt around these things? And that also is just like, I mean, to bring it back, maybe to force it back to our conversation around contemplation, I think we tend to think about contemplation because it's a going inward, because it's deeply reflective. We think it's a solitary thing. But if we are social creatures, like there's like the circumstances by which you are allowed to be solitary is going to depend upon a lot of other people. Right. Like, yeah, 
you know, I have a family in a house. Like if I want a half hour to meditate every day, I need the buy-in of at least four other people and a noisy woodle to like give me a half hour to meditate every day. And that's like, like nothing is done by yourself, even the most interior and selective things. And that relates to this idea of like, we are bodies in the world. Like the circumstances we need to do this kind of reflection are ones that require the cooperation, both of those around us and of our own bodies, right? I studied, you know, some Zen meditation in the past. And in the Christian tradition, meditation and contemplation are two different stages, <laughs> like the Divina. And it's arguable whether Zen meditation is the same thing as Western meditation in the first place. But like, there are all the rules that go along with how to meditate in the Zen tradition is like to try to diminish distractions. So you, there's a certain amount of time after you eat or before which you're going to eat when your stomach's not digesting and is also not getting hungry, when is the kind of ideal moment to do it. And it, you also do it in community because others around you meditating provide the kind of social structure you need to be able to sit in that place for an amount of time, right? What we see in Harry going to this bathroom on the advice of others and looking for quiet is that this moment of contemplation depends upon all these other external factors. Oh, Matt, I have so many thoughts, including I now have the answer to my own question, which is... Oh, good. Uh, that has nothing to do with water, but I think one of the things about contemplation, right, is if you're thinking about a deep question, which is externalized through this egg, right, you're carrying it with yeah. you all the time. And I can imagine the presumption being like, you take this egg to bed with you, you take this egg to the bath with you. You take this, you know, and you're constantly yeah. just like yeah. thinking about it and trying it. And like the hope, the like magical pedagogical hope is that you're just going to keep experimenting with it in order to see what it is and what it does. There's, yeah. there's a children's book that I love that Ariana Nettleman actually gave to me called What Do You Do With an Idea by Kobe Yamada. And the idea is, is drawn as an egg with a crown on it. You like walk around with it and you introduce it to different people and you get their thoughts about your idea and right. Like it's this conversational community thing that yeah. you were talking about yeah. that I, I love. And oh my gosh, I also just thought of another thing while you're speaking about sort of like the idea of carrying around the egg all the time and just being with the egg as, as part of the practice. Like one of the things that's also a part of Zen meditation practice is you are asked unanswerable questions. Mm -hmm. Like you're given riddles that actually have no answer. Because the point is not to arrive at an answer. The point is just to like practice the act of contemplating, of dwelling with something, sitting with something that's difficult to figure out. And I think that's also part of the challenge here. Like an egg doesn't make any sense with water. And that's the point. You just have to sit with it and sit with this thing that has no obvious answer because that's what the practice of contemplation is. It's inviting you into this relationship of confusion and unknowing where you still keep attending to it, still keep reflecting upon it. Yeah, the other thing that I was thinking about, Matt, is, is that even when alone, you're not alone, right? Like, mm -hmm. Harry does find this alone place, and then literally Myrtle is there, and also the mermaid is there, like, splashing around yeah. for Cedric, right? And I think that that is embodied in a frustrating way in the chapter, which I find relatable. I will sometimes like splurge and go for a massage. And sometimes like, even though I've put my phone on vibrate, just hear it going off and off and off and off and being like, ah, right. Like I can't even get 45 minutes on my own. Yes, I have learned to just turn my phone off. But then there are like a million notifications of, you know, my brother's making jokes about Groundhog Day that are haunting me. But also, like, those same nuisances, right, like, are the things that buoy you and give you ideas and are the thoughts in your head or, in Myrtle's case, the, like, actual advice. And so this idea of whether or not you're ever really alone, even when you're in this prefect's bathroom searching for the silence, you know, you were talking about the buy-in of your yeah. family. But the truth is, is that Suki will never buy-in to right. you having 30 right. minutes of silence, right? Like, your woodle is the moaning Myrtle. <laughs> yeah. A and sim has a similar relationship to consent. <laughs> Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. So, Vanessa, the other moments of contemplation, at least the most obvious ones for me, were like there are like this, a series of pregnant pauses between characters in this chapter, which to me signals some deep thought and reflection, these moments of contemplation. So Harry, after he figures out what he thinks he needs to do or gets a good lead on what he thinks he's going to need to do for the next task, he leaves the prefix bathroom. And as he's walking back, he sees that Mr. Crouch, or who he believes to be Mr. Crouch, is in Snape's office. And just his Gryffindor curiosity and his invisibility cloak lead him to just kind of wander that way to kind of see what's going on. And on the way, a bad thing happens. He steps on the trick stair. He drops the egg, which starts screaming. He drops the Marauder's map. He's in his invisibility cloak, so he can't be seen. But Filch comes. Filch thinks his peas. There's this whole thing. Snape comes out. Mad-Eye comes out, who, you know, we readers who have read the text before know is actually Barty Jr., and who was in Snape's office comes out and there's this whole thing. And and all three of these characters know more than meets the eye is going on. Well, except maybe Harry. Harry's not sure what's going on, but he, he wants to know why Mr. Crouch would be in Snape's office, but is mostly just worried about not getting in trouble. But Snape and Mad-Eye slash Barty Jr. both know more than meets the eye is going on and are trying to figure out what the right play is and what the motivations of the other character are. And as they talk to each other, you can see them occasionally like pausing, right? So Snape is upset because someone's been in his office. He knows Moody's been in his office before. And Moody says Dumbledore gave him permission to, and Snape argues with him about that. And then Moody makes some kind of vague threats to Snape. And then there's this moment of pause where it seems like Snape is reflecting. And then he backs off and like decides not to have the confrontation with Moody in that moment any further. And we're not really sure what's going on inside Snape's head, but the text indicates to us that something's going on inside Snape's head. He turns inward a little bit. He has this moment of reflection, maybe contemplation in this moment. And this happens again a couple moments later when Moody slash Barty Jr. picks up the map. You realize as it says that his name is Bartimius Crouch, and you can tell that 
Moody slash Barty does not know what Harry knows or is not sure what Harry would be capable of figuring out about what's going on. And there's this, the text says there's this long pause yeah. while Moody slash Barty is trying to suss out what's going on and what the risk is. And then Harry asks a question and you think Moody makes a decision and, and then and then moves on. I just think that it's interesting in this, you know, we talked about needing kind of physical, the physical circumstances we need to reflect deeply. Like one is for things to slow down and for like in this moment, like Snape in one instance and then Moody slash Barty in another instance, both just need to stop for a second. Like they they can't keep going at the pace they're going because they they have gotten ahead of their own double agency and they need to kind of pay attention to who everybody is and what's going on so they make the right next move. I have a theory about these pauses. Okay. I think that these pauses are moments in which you are trying to access the things that you contemplated in the past, hmm. right? They are, okay, come on. What, I am agitated right now. Yep. I don't know what to do right now. Like, I can imagine what Snape is doing is saying, right, like, what are my priorities here? Okay, my priority is to be loyal to Dumbledore. This yep. is the thing that I've contemplated, right? Like, and that is the thing that I am going to do. And so it is a pause not to contemplate precisely, but to access a previous moment of contemplation. It's like you've built this contemplation pool and you're like dipping your toe into it to give you strength in this moment, which obviously reminds me of my favorite quote in Jane Eyre, which I know I've quoted many times on the podcast before, but you know, it's Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against the rigor, right? That there are moments where your whole body is like, I hate Moody. Something here is like fishy. I am being gaslit by a million people right now. Okay, but like when I was calm, I had these laws and these principles that I contemplated. And I'm going to try to access that feeling in that moment in this pause yeah. and at least go back yeah. to that. And so I feel like it shows the the fact that wisdom is gleaned in these pauses, like wisdom for not escalating the situation, but rather de-escalating the situation, is accessing this like past intuition. Yeah. That's really brilliant. I, there's there's actually two things I want to respond to in that. Like, but the first is about this idea of intuition, because I think we think about intuition as a feeling, right? Like, I'm actually reading a book right now from the 19th century, where in two different editions, the author in one edition uses the word intuition, and the next edition uses the word feeling, mm. right? Like, I think we we tend to associate it with feeling, and maybe it is. Because in the moments when we have intuitions, we're not sure where the thought behind the intuition comes from. And I think what you're saying is the thought behind the intuition comes from past contemplation. Like yeah. if you spend a lot of time deeply reflecting upon something, deeply reflecting upon a question, deeply reflecting upon your values or your priorities or whatever, in the moment, all that past reflection comes to bear in what feels like a feeling, but what really is just the fruit of a bunch of thought, right? Yeah. And so like intuition doesn't just come from nowhere. It's actually the product of attention, deep attention over time and kind of a practice of attention, right? And that also just made me think of how I respond to like unexpected things. I, I don't like when plans change. I tend to react really poorly when plans change mm -hmm. and often make the wrong decision <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when plans change because I get so flustered by the change of plans. All I can focus upon is this thing I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. But when I have made the right decision or done the right thing in the wake of that or when others around me have helped me to do the right thing in those situations, it's usually because... I stop or they encourage me to stop and slow down and think, okay, okay, what's actually the most important thing here? Mm -hmm. It's not the distraction. There's still a value, which is the reason why you're doing this thing in the first place. And then start with that question, like, what's your priority? Now, how do you try to approach as near as possible to, the, to living up to that priority or that value? And then you can actually respond and do something, right? And I feel like you can see, like, to me, that seems like what's going on with Snape and Moody here, right? Snape, what Snape wants to do, like this unexpected thing, he knows something's going on. He knows Harry is up there someplace. He knows that he does not trust Moody. He knows there's something fishy about it. And he wants to have the fight right now. Like there's just like mm -hmm. in him because of his personality and his own impulsiveness, like he wants to get into it and have the fight right now. 
but he stops and he thinks, no, I have to lay low for longer and figure out what's actually going on. And I think that's also what, you know, Barty's taking a calculated risk here. Mm -hmm. Like he thinks it's possible Harry could figure out what's going on, Mm -hmm. but then he, because he's afraid, like, oh my gosh, am I found out? It's possible someone has just seen my true identity on the Marauder's map. Right. But then he takes a moment and thinks about it and thinks, it's actually not likely that Harry would figure this out. And so he takes, he's willing to take this calculated risk and just keep the Marauder's map to protect himself in the future. And so like, it's the same thing. This unexpected thing happens. You're distracted. You want to focus on the distraction. But as you said in your, in your response, like slowing down and focusing on, okay, what's actually the thing that's at stake here? What's actually the priority? How do I approximate living up to that as nearly as I can? And one of the things I love about it is also that Snape seems to be in this contemplative relationship with Dumbledore. And I think that that's the other reason he's able to marshal himself so quickly here, or at least I'm projecting. It's why I would be able to. If it's just my own lawn principle that I'm trying to live up to in this moment, I'm like, whatever. Like, I'm pissed. But if I'm like, I'm going to have to go and have this processing conversation with someone who I admire and respect and account for this, it feels different. And it I don't know if I'm right about this, but it seems to me that Snape and Dumbledore have this mutually contemplative relationship where they are Mm -hmm. just in conversation with trying to figure this out together. Yeah in the glimpses that we get into it. And then you get the feeling that like Snape goes back to his office and thinks about that, but that there are like levels to this type of contemplative realization. Yeah. I think matters. Yeah. I think this idea of like to them trying to figure it out together or these characters trying to figure out something in the moment, or even us trying to figure out contemplation here <laughs> in this chapter, a little bonus etymology corner again this morning. The word contemplation comes out of the Latin, but the Latin word translates a Greek word, which is, theoria, theory, Hmm. right? So like to have a theory is the same thing as contemplating something, right? And so there is this also this idea of of figuring out something that's difficult to figure out, of of maybe using like imagination and curiosity alongside your experience and attention to try to come to an answer of what's going on. And I think, Matt, this leads to just one last thing that I, I would like to talk about, which is this line that Snape has Snape reminds Moody in this scene that Moody has already searched his office. And Moody is like, yes, Dumbledore said that I could. And Snape is like, I refuse to believe that he gave you orders to search my office. And, you know, Moody, as Crouch, sort of walks it back and is like, well, he said I could do whatever was necessary. But this confidence of I do not believe you, you are lying to my face, But I have been in contemplative conversation with, you know, with Albus Dumbledore for 13 years, 14 years. And like, I just, I know him so well. Based on all of this years of observation and mutual contemplation that I can say with total confidence that you are lying right now, you know, just gets to the heart of that intuition as previous contemplation, because I think it's how adults can tell when kids are lying, not because kids are necessarily bad liars, but because we were kids once and we've been on this earth longer and right. Like it can lead to this intuition. And obviously that intuition doesn't always mean that you're right, but I really love this idea that you become more intuitive, the more that you engage in earnest contemplation. And I think it really does have to do with like just time invested, right? Like I'm really good at telling when my kids are lying, but it's harder for me to tell when other kids are lying. Sure. I mean, I often can because I was also a kid, but like my kids, I can absolutely tell because I know them so well. And as manipulative as Dumbledore and Snape's relationship can be, they have been in this together for a long time and they can intuit one another's responses because of that. Yeah. When I imagine Dumbledore and Snape's relationship, I do think there's all of this beautiful stuff that comes out of it, this mutual contemplation. And you also get to see the wrongheadedness of it being just these two guys, (laughs) right? Like, you're like, what if McGonagall was also in this room and brought into this circle of trust? How would it be different, right? Like, the contemplation is limited by the ideas that are allowed in the room, which is why we read and why we want as, as many voices we respect as possible, at least in our heads, as we go through the percolation of trying to figure out the right thing to do. Yeah. Thank you.
So Matt, we are now going to do Pardes, our four-step Jewish reading practice, and here is the sentence that I have selected. Harry took a great breath and slid under the surface, and now, sitting on the marble bottom of the bubble-filled bath, he heard a chorus of eerie voices singing to him from the open egg in his hands. It's a great sentence, Vanessa. So we're doing Pardes, and the first step of Pardes is Peshat, and so... In Peshat, we reflect upon or we talk about or we contemplate what is kind of literally going on in and around the sentence as it arises. So what are the circumstances around the sentence in the text? What I love about this is that there's something very ritualistic about it, right? He takes a big breath and slides under the surface. It's almost like like a yoga instruction, like take a deep breath and go under, right? Like go down. And then he's sitting. (laughs) It really sounds like the way a good yoga instructor would talk. Like, and now it's as if you're sitting on a marble bottom of a bubble filled bath, right? And it's, he's submerged and that gives him the opportunity to hear these voices singing to him. I mean, and what, what's literally happening, right, is that he's bringing the egg, the second task clue, egg underwater with him in this, you know, big, beautiful bathtub. But it is this, like, very ethereal, magical, mystical, multiple sensory thing that he's engaging in. Yeah. You know, we spoke so much in the beginning about how all the circumstances that you require to get to this moment of contemplation, and he's had this moment where, where the truth has been revealed to him or the secret's been revealed to him. But like, it's so creepy that Myrtle's right out there. Oh my like, God. Trying to get a peek through the bubbles, right? <laughs> like that's, like Harry's capacity for focus here is really astounding because he is not distracted by the fact that Myrtle's out there. He's just like, cover your eyes, Myrtle. And that's that's whatever. That It's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah. And what's deeply weird about it is that she ends up being helpful. Yeah. But she's so coy about it, right? Oh, yeah. Cedric didn't. And the bubbles were almost gone by the time he figured it out. I don't right? like that the creep in the mentoring situation at the boarding school turns out to, like, be useful. I'm not I'm not thrilled with that. Yeah. Okay, the second step of Pardis is remez. Mm-hmm. And remez is when we track a word that kind of jumps out at us in the sentence through the whole series. See how it arises elsewhere throughout the text. Uh, So do you have a word that jumped out at you in this passage or in this line, Vanessa? Let me read the sentence one more time and we'll see. Okay. Harry took a great breath and slid under the surface. And now, sitting on the marble bottom of the bubble-filled bath, he heard a chorus of eerie voices singing to him from the open egg in his hands. I mean, breath is what stuck out to me. Interesting. In this book, there's a lot of people muttering things under their breath, right? And I'm thinking Mm, about that also with Umbridge, right? Where it's like, wait, what is she doing, right? No one, for a lot of book five, no one feels comfortable standing up to Umbridge, but they're all muttering under their breaths about how horrible she is. Yeah. Yeah. Harry does a lot of muttering under his breath at the Dursleys. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of me coming up in the second task about managing breathing. Oh, that's absolutely true. Right? I mean, that everyone's going to have their own approach. Having figured out kind of what the next task is, now you have to figure out how to do it, and breathing is part of that. Yeah, it's the big question. Yeah, the breathing of dragons is dangerous. Yeah. That happens in this book and elsewhere in the series. Yeah, this, like, taking of a big breath before you do something brave, right, is... Yeah. I'm also just thinking that there's a time when, like, Harry gets hit in the face with a Quidditch ball and, right, like, he can't breathe through his nose, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So, Stops his breath, yeah. Yeah, like, breath is, right, like, very physical and it's also very metaphorical, right? You, like, yeah. it's a way of gathering courage. Yeah. Okay, the third step of Pardes is mm-hmm. Drosh. Mm-hmm. And the way we do Drosh on the podcast is we consider or contemplate what sermon we would preach on this passage. Do you have a sermon you would preach, Vanessa? I'm very interested in this chorus of eerie voices singing to him from the open egg in his hands and that he has to listen to those. I feel like when I hear a chorus of eerie voices, I'm like, "Eh, I'm going to listen to something else, right? I have my choruses, my media diet, my friends that I feel confident listening to. And I think... I would preach on a little bit of skepticism of what it is that we listen to and maybe Hmm. the possibility of adding a chorus that maybe sounds eerie to the voices that we listen to in our lives. What about you, Matt? 
I think I would do something about breath. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that you pulled out that word and I hadn't really thought about breath in this sentence so much in the first couple of times you read it. But now I'm thinking about breath, breath in something you said in particular. So I'm stealing my sermon from you, basically, right. about how like breath is both spoken of literally and metaphorically in the ancient texts of the Jewish and Christian traditions, the word for spirit just is the same word as the word for breath. So spiritus in Latin and pneuma in Greek and ruah in Hebrew is just like spirit and breath. It's the same thing. Like it's the wind that goes in and out of you is also the thing that gives you life. I think there's a wisdom in that. And what we've been talking about actually around contemplation, that the mental and the spiritual are deeply connected to the physical and the material. And I probably want to preach some sermon having to do with how these things aren't like separate or even two sides of the same coin, but actually are deeply tied up into one another and are maybe in many cases just the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. The final step of Pardes is my favorite. It's the sod. Sod means secret. And that's one way to think about it. But recently, I have come to think about a different way in a way that you described to me since the beginning, evidently, Vanessa, which is what's the thing that's shaken loose by this conversation? Mm-hmm. So what is shaken loose for you? Vanessa, what secret has shaken loose? Harry took a breath and slid under the surface and now sitting on the marble bottom of the bubble-filled bath, he heard a chorus of eerie voices singing to him from the open egg in his hands. I mean, just, you know, I think it's a reminder that Hermione and Ron aren't enough. It's wonderful that Harry Mm -hmm. now has Hermione and Ron. It's more than he had, you know, when we met him in book one by an infinite amount of love and energy. And yet he needs a bigger chorus because Hermione and Ron can't help him figure out what this egg is. They can't, they're not going to be able to do everything. And he needs mentors and younger people. Like we all need a diverse community in order to be our best selves. Yeah. So just a reminder of how alone Harry still is. What about you, Matt? What was shaken loose for you? I don't know if this is a It's shaken loose for me. Maybe it's shaken loose. I don't know. This is a theme that's on our podcast a lot in our reading of of Harry Potter. Just, I didn't expect to see it in this passage, but it really is there, which is how much the children in this series depend upon folks who ought to know better or ought to do better. Maybe Moaning Myrtle's an exception because she, I don't know, when you become a ghost at 15, do you remain 15 developmentally for the rest of eternity? I don't know. But Harry just depends so much upon folks who are imperfect and flawed, like all of us do, right? But he's a child, and the stakes for him are life and death, and he needs all these flawed people. He's to put up with all their flaws in order to get what he needs just to, like, stay alive. And that's just, that's part of the tragedy of Harry Potter. It's kind of the the sad side of this heroic character who who responds to it with so much resilience throughout the books. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt, for a wonderful days. Thanks for your wonderful sentence, Vanessa. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Sarah. 
Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Sarah, and I just finished listening to your episode from Book 4, Chapter 10. And I was really struck by your sort of criticism of Arthur and, you know, discussion of him, quote unquote, quitting his values in the fallout after the World Cup. And I was really struck by that because I think I always sort of read it more that he was prioritizing both urgency and importance in his role as a caretaker for Harry, not just of his own family. Um, We know that he and Molly both have, you know, especially Molly, we see in the books later, but that they have both significantly stepped into an almost primary caregiving role for him. We know that they know the full history of the Death Eaters. We know that like many wizards who kind of fought through the first era of Voldemort, that there's a good chance that Harry's safety is not secure, that he may still have like a pretty significant role to play in the future as well. So I just thought it was really interesting because although you guys spent some time talking about him wanting to get home quickly to alleviate Molly's fears. And I think that's true. And obviously he wants to protect his own family as well. I think there's a pretty significant like portion that is not him quitting, but actually committing more to his highest value, like, which is knowing, you know, that despite like regulations of safety or, anything else that he is in charge of Harry. So I want to offer a quick blessing today to anyone who is functioning as a like de facto caregiver for someone who potentially brings a lot of baggage. And even when it compromises other values that they're committed to, to being there for them. So thanks for all you do. Sarah, thank you so much for your voicemail. I really appreciate that you're pointing to the fact that Arthur isn't just a father to his own children in this moment. He's also a a father figure to Harry in a significant way, which ups the threat level of the situation and is part of the moral calculus that he's doing when deciding to cut in line and get back to Molly versus like uphold some sort of standard for the ministry. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I I think this is a trick with competing values, right? When values compete, it's not one of them becomes not valuable. It's the you have to decide which is the more important one. And and Harry is a crucial one here. He's a crucial one to Arthur. He's a crucial one to the Weasleys. And I think you're right to point out that that's one of the values he's choosing to really protect and uphold in this decision, which is a difficult decision. Now's the time in the podcast when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Forced Spears, 87, a lifelong acting coach and dear friend. Bernice Malkin, 96. Booby, who loved Linder Chocolate and her family. Talia Fry, 44, a leader, mentor, friend, and champion for all. Lavelle Davis Jr., Devin Chandler, and Deshaun Perry, age 19, 19, and 21, the three victims of the shooting at the University of Virginia on Sunday, November 13th. Lavelle had a smile that would light up the room and most people. Deshaun was very artistic and could draw, could shape pots from clay, loved music, and was very cultured and well-rounded. And Devin was a big kid who loved to smile, sing, and dance. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Snape. He is just being gaslit again and again. And whenever he is, you know, it's by Crouch slash Moody in this moment. I just want to pause and empathize with him because knowing that you are being lied to is such a demoralizing and humiliating thing to have to endure. And Snape just has to endure it here for this quote unquote greater cause. And I can't stand Snape (laughs) and he's an abuser and horrible, but these moments are really 
you get a brief insight as to why potentially he is the way that he is. And it's not an excuse. A lot of people endure these things and don't abuse Neville. But they are moments where I feel called to to flesh out the humanity of Snape. So I'd like to bless him for that. What about you, Matt? I have a similar kind of purpose in my blessing this week. (laughs) I want to bless Filch, who I think also is at times an abuser and horrible. Yeah. But as we've talked about in other episodes, he's another one of these marginal figures in the Hogwarts world who could be better cared for by those at the school. You know, one of the things I'm thinking in this chapter is like, Filch has this antagonistic relationship with Peeves. Peeves is so disruptive, so destructive, makes Filch's job so difficult. And what's revealed in this chapter is Filch says, now I finally have the evidence that will make Dumbledore kick you out of Hogwarts, which is like, that's the solution. Mm-hmm. Like all the stuff that Peeves causes could be done if Dumbledore was just like, Peeves, get out of here. And then everything, all the pestering of the kids, all the embarrassment, like the shaming of the kids, all the the mess that Peeves causes, all the work that he causes Filch, all that could be gone if Dumbledore just said, Peeves, get out of here. It just makes me think, again, reminds me how marginal Filch is and how much could be done to to make everybody's life easier from some fairly simple actions from those in power. So although he's a pretty problematic character in many cases, blessings to Filch this week. Yeah. Matt, next week we're going to be talking about Book 4, Chapter 26, The Second Task, through the theme of purpose. Sounds great. Our reminders before we give our thanks this week are that you can get ad-free episodes of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text by subscribing to our Patreon or subscribing on Apple Podcasts. And of course, you can join us at summer camp. You can find out more about all of this at NotSorryWorks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gumpankum. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Evan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by 8Cast. Thanks this week to Sarah for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Browns, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those who have loved and lost this week. But you're very thoughtful. Okay, I'll let you tell your story. I'll argue with you about yourself later.